Hello and welcome back to the Outside of Us podcast. This is a global news podcast by students for students. I'm your host, Golorano, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Nikhil and Elowa to dive into a topic I'm sure you've seen on the news, the current situation regarding Russia and Alexei Navalny. If you haven't heard about this yet, then Google Navalny. He's a Russian opposition leader, lawyer, and anti-corruption activist. He came to international prominence by organizing anti-government demonstration and running for office to advocate reforms against corruption in Russia and against President Vladimir Putin and his government. Navalny has been described as the man Vladimir Putin fears most by the Wall Street Journal. More recently, Navalny was poisoned by a nerve agent, allegedly under Putin's orders, and was flown to Germany for treatment. Upon his return to Russia, he was immediately taken into custody and imprisoned for embezzlement crimes he was convicted of in late 2014. This sparked the fire of revolution in everyday Russians who took to the streets to protest Navalny's imprisonment, not just in Moscow, but in cities and towns across the entire country. Let's set up a timeline. In August 2020, Navalny was poisoned by the Novichok nerve agent by an unidentified party, though it is widely believed that whoever administered the agent was allegedly acting under orders from the Russian president. After being taken to Germany for his healing and recovery process, Navalny returned to Russia on January 17, 2021, at which point he was arrested for violating his parole and sentenced to three and a half years in prison. A mere two days later, on January 19, 2021, Navalny's YouTube channel posted a two-hour-long video exposing Putin, who had allegedly spent over 100 billion rubles, which is approximately 1.35 billion US dollars, on a palace located on the coast of the Black Sea. To put this into context, the Black Sea coast is essentially the French Riviera of Russia, a beautiful section of coastline that has become a popular tourist destination. Navalny and his team provide evidence of corruption in their statement claiming that Putin used government funding to pay for his palace. And in this matter, we reach the crux of Navalny's chief injustice. He portrays himself as the anti-corruption campaigner. He yearns for Putin to be removed from office and replaced with someone more honorable. And his platform has a strong following. In 2013, Navalny ran in the Moscow mayoral race and got 27% of the vote, losing to the incumbent Putin appointee. But back to the matter at hand. In the wake of Navalny's arrest turned imprisonment, Russians took to the streets and protested his unjust incarceration. On the 31st of January, 5,100 people were arrested by the Russian police force and at least 51 people were beaten after being detained by the Russian police. Even in the small town of Yekaterinburg, 880 miles from Moscow, people joined in on the protests to show their support for Navalny and their condemnation of the Russian government's actions. But now that we know what's happening, let's delve further into why. At first glance, one might assume Russia to be a united, nationalistic country with nothing but support for its government. However, a closer look reveals the terrible conditions for those living in the former communist country. In a small town like Oryol, 200 miles southwest of Moscow, the industry never recovered from the post-Soviet collapse. In a testimony to the Wall Street Journal, Artyom Parakarov details the social contract that most Russian people have with the government. 
There's an unspoken agreement that the people would turn a blind eye to the government's stealing as long as the government gives its citizens a chance to earn. For much of Putin's reign, oil prices were high and the country was relatively prosperous. However, as oil prices have dropped, discontent has grown, and Navalny's arrest merely sparked the ticking time bomb of, res of resentment against Putin and his administration. In the words of Prokhorov, people don't go out to protest for someone, they go out against something. A lot of Russians have grown tired of the slow economy, and justifiably so. Monthly salaries for everyday citizens is as low as $400, while factories stand abandoned, collecting dust. In addition to the pitiable monetary situation, Russia's infrastructure is failing. In a clear example of corruption, local officials steal money that is reserved for public works projects. In Oriol, a hospital project stands unfinished, and without money, will continue to do so. Perhaps the most blatantly obvious way of emphasizing Russia's economic situation is examining the wealth distribution. The top 10% richest of Russia's population hold and control 83% of the country's wealth. Conversely, this shows that 90% of the country's population, almost 130 million people, hold only 17% of the nation's wealth. This is evidenced by the fact that nearly one in every five people in Russia lack indoor sanitation, a staggering 20% of the population. At least to us, this is shocking, as Russia is always perceived as a modern and westernized country. Now back to the protests. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov has stated that the protests were, quote, unlawful, which we find somewhat odd, especially considering that the people of Russia, quote, have the right to gather peacefully without weapons and to hold meetings, rallies, demonstrations, marches, and pickets, according to Article 31 of their own constitution, adopted in 1993 after the collapse of the Soviet Union. We must assume he claimed this in an attempt to justify the significant amount of arrests made in the reports of the police brutality against protesters. But despite his claim, the U.S. and German governments have condemned the Russian governing body for use of excessive force. But even in the face of stark opposition from the police and the government, Russians continue to find innovative ways to protest and let themselves be heard. Recently, people all over the country shined their cell, cell phone flashlights in a display of unity. Though some may consider this a step down and back from the hands-on protests of the prior week, we believe that this manner of protest was a strategic attempt to appeal to the more moderate population of Russia that was either too reluctant or too afraid to commit to a large-scale protest. In a flashlight protest, all one had to do to display their support was to go outside with their family and friends and shine their flashlight at the sky, a much easier and less dangerous task than marching on the streets of Moscow. In an attempt to show the Russian people of the widespread support their movement had, Navalny's team posted pictures of people from towns all over Russia assembling and shining their flashlights, presumably in the hopes that it would exaggerate their numbers and persuade more people to join their cause. Conversely, a state-run news network in Russia showed photos of two to three people showing up in town squares to participate in the flashlight protests, in an attempt to show that the protests had no traction nor any following. However, in doing this, the state did what they had never done before, acknowledged Navalny as a legitimate protesting force in Russia. 
In the past, Putin and the state-run news networks would never refer to Navalny by name, believing that in doing so, they would give the party leader legitimacy. However, by covering the flashlight protests in their news show, the government proved that Navalny and his following have become a prominent force in Russian politics and cannot be swept under the rug anymore. But let's continue the discussion of Russian state-run media and government propaganda. One news channel posted clips of people protesting against the protesters, in other words, supporting Putin and the United Russia Party, or Putin's party. The media claimed that the motto of these flash mobs was Putin is our president, an obvious show of support for the president. The desired effect of these clips was to show the Russian public that Putin still had a strong support base among the people. But many have come forward with statements claiming that the clips were filmed as per the instructions by the Kremlin and the Russian government, and that these people were brought to the recordings under false pretenses. Just as a side note, the Kremlin is basically kind of like a Russian White House. If In addition, another state-backed media outlet published a retaliatory expose against Navalny after Navalny posted his expose on Putin's Black Sea Palace. They claimed Navalny to be a hypocrite, stating that he was living in luxury while preaching corruption in high-level government officials. Unfortunately for them, the expose video proof was filmed in a house that Navalny was renting at the time, and the reporter attempted to emphasize the opulence of Navalny's living conditions while highlighting his bedroom, which was no different than that of a standard hotel room. It's pretty easy to see through this attempt to paint Navalny in a negative light to decrease the popular support for him and sway the people back to the United Russian Party. Before we end this podcast, I want to talk briefly about the social connotations of these Russian protests. Under the pretext of Valentine's Day, hundreds of women banded together in support of Navalny, and in particular, his wife. Female activists such as Daria Obrastova wanted to show that they were for love and against violence. They wanted freedom and justice for Russia, not hate and violence. This has happened not just in Moscow, but in other parts of Russia as well. In St. Petersburg, about 100 women joined together to express their support for the victims of political repression. These are just a few examples of potential peaceful protest options for those in Russia desiring to show their support but not violate the rules set by the Kremlin. However, it appears that the Russian government does not care how you protest. In a general warning to the public, Dmitry Peskov, spokesperson for the Kremlin, stated that they would, quote, not be playing cat and mouse with anyone and that anyone who protested would be punished under the law. Now, after hearing this, you may be wondering, what can I do to make the situation better? Well, for those of you who don't reside in Russia, which I'm assuming is the majority, there's not much you can do to actively protest and support Navalny. However, what you can do is put pressure on your own respective government. As recently as March 2nd, Presidents Biden and the U.S. government imposed sanctions on high-ranking Russian officials. But in order to actually bring about change, we all need to support our government and in their actions and urge them to take further action. Navalny also has a YouTube channel which you can stream in order to increase awareness on social media platforms. Nevertheless, we would like to acknowledge that Navalny is not a saint. He's not without his flaws. There are some claims that he has ties to white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups, 
and though unsubstantiated, there is a chance that there is some truth to them. We must also consider that these protests are not solely in support of Navalny, but the result of a build-up in resentment due to factors generally out of the Russian government's and Putin's control, such as the price of oil, one of Russia's major exports. One might argue that Putin is doing the best he can to keep Russia afloat given the circumstances, and views his conflict with Navalny as a war, thereby making it okay to seize more direct control of his country and its economy. Of course, all claims brought up today are rather subjective and inevitably have implicit bias in them. But here at Outside of Us, we hope to help you form your own opinions by simply presenting information in an easily digestible way. Thank you for listening to the Outside of Us podcast. If you want to reach out to us, make a comment on this episode, or tell us an episode that we should make, you can reach out to us on social media. We have an Instagram, a TikTok, and you can also reach out to us at outsideofuspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to come back next week to learn more about the abduction of the children of rich aristocrats in Nigeria and just what the heck is going on there. Goodbye. Goodbye.